0: Uh, but he because he's a follower of Jesus began with prayer and afterwards they partook of his well-stocked uh, cellar and I have to say it's a great cellar if I get an invitation don't refuse it but I won't let his name out of the bag anyway uh, toward the end of the evening this young guy not this fellow he's just kind of standing as an icon but this young man approached him and in typical Australian fashion fortified against the moment If you're going to talk about God stuff you have got to have a few first right because it's a little too serious to approach otherwise he came to my friend and he said to him, uh, great speech, mate, referring to the prayer. So you have somebody where he's coming from. And then he got really serious. He said, you know this God thing? He said, I'm, I'm just not sure it's going to make that much of a difference in my life. I just, I just don't think it will. He said, you know, my parents brought me up the right way. I pay my taxes, never cheat on them, always take care of my workers, give money to charity, all that kind of thing. He said, I just don't think the God thing is going to make that much difference. And my friend looked at him. And I don't know what you would have said. I'm terrified to think what I would have said. But he looked at him and said, "Well, you know what? Um, you know, what? But take what you say at face value. So yeah, you're probably right. It probably won't make that much difference." But he said, "You know what, mate? Um, that's not really the issue. Because 15, 20, 30 years from now, you and I are both going to be six feet under pushing up daisies. And if you think your goodness can take care of that, good luck. But I have to tell you, there's a lot of good people still down there." A lot of intelligent people, a lot of bright people. Right? He said, mate, the problem's not goodness. The problem's death. And what Christians believe is that Jesus said to us, if you'll trust me, I will take you through death as well and bring you out the other side. He said, that's what the Christian thing is on about. And tonight, I'm going to say that that's exactly what Paul is on about too. It might sound a bit radical to say this, but um, I do have to say to you, you know, as kindly as I can, if you and I do not get out of the good and evil paradigm, we'll never even get started on a genuine Christian life. It just won't happen. It's not the grammar of the universe. And all it will do is take you back to Torah. We've been talking about Torah, and all Torah can do is condemn you. What we're on about is life. Those are the big things. And, uh, Take my word for it now, but I'll show you Paul says the same thing in just a few moments. So, tonight it seems to me that when Paul wants to talk about the answer to Torah's being weakened by our rebellious flesh, how do we get to actually deal with this? The answer is through life in the spirit. That's the point underneath there. Well, um, if you're anything like me, it's probably been a long week, you might have forgotten what we talked about the last few weeks, and uh, me being me, context is everything, so I'm going to spend five or so minutes just to get us up to speed. Is that okay? It has to be because I have the mic. So just in terms of context, a couple of things to keep in mind here is, first of all, don't forget what we learned about Paul the man. Whatever we do, don't turn him into some abstract, uh, closet-ridden philosopher, theologian, I think he's a remarkable human being. He's vulnerable. He's battered. He pours out his life for others. He bears in his body the marks of his loyalty to Jesus. And he's pretty much lost everything because of him. So when you read Romans, read it in that mind, right? Uh, Don't read it as some kind of academic theologian like this. Second key point to know about Paul is Jesus. Uh, You can't really understand Paul apart from Jesus. Who radically transformed his life. He talked a bit about that last time, what happened on the Damascus Road, that even three famous professors on the BBC, BBC think probably happened. Only okay? way anyway, I can explain Paul. I'm going to have to keep fiddling with this thing because it's sliding down my back. And uh, Don't worry about it. It's the nervous twitch. <laughs> and then the third thing you have to remember about Paul is uh, he's been waiting for Israel's great promises of friendship with God, that's what righteousness means resurrection and of course the new creational life of the spirit and he discovers this guy who kept the law blamelessly that none of this came about by doing that in fact it came only about through trusting in Jesus so Romans in the context of his wanting to share with these people whom he's never visited but wanted to and also seeking their participation in his mission to Spain so hear that That's pastoral and missional. That's the context for Romans. Not, again, academic theology, missional, pastoral. In that context, he's trying to unpack the staggering implications of what he experienced when he encountered Jesus. And the really big one concerns the identity of God's people, Israel. And that is they are no longer defined by Torah, but their devotion to Jesus. And I don't know if you've had much to do with Christian Jewish debates. The real sticking point is Jesus. I know some rabbis, they say, Jesus has some nice things to say. But you know, every faithful rabbi will point people to Torah. People call, uh, Jesus calls people to himself. And then he behaves in ways that uh, just don't fit that Jewish paradigm. So I'm no longer defined by Torah, but devotion to Jesus. And I think that's why Romans 9 through 11, which we're going to look at, is so critical. It's not an afterthought. It's been the big issue lurking in the background all along. Well, Paul, if what you're saying is true, it's not about Torah, what does that say about the people of God who are defined by this? What are you going to do with them? Are they marginalised? Well, that's a topic for another time. But uh, in what we're talking about is, well, if Torah is no longer the way forward, what is, and that's the second point, what about life now? And we started on that last week. Thank you, Alison. And we're going to pick it up today. So that's kind of a larger pastoral context. Uh, Where we are in the letter, as you might recall, chapters 6 through 11, that's a large slice of Romans, addresses a series of objections. Now, I suggested that Paul already knows about these. First of all, he's had long experience in preaching the gospel in synagogues all around the Mediterranean basin. So there's probably not a question that he hasn't heard before somewhere. But we also know from the list of names at the end of the letter, he's got some serious insider knowledge as to what's going on in the Roman church. So I think he knows what these objections are before he even actually has to hear them from the individual's concerned. The first big objection is this, right up there in front of you. Well, if you don't become righteous from Torah, but by grace, why not sin up a storm? Because the more sin, the more grace. Why don't we do that, right? I'm not sure how serious that question is, uh, but Paul responds, I think, somewhat graciously. Well, what he points out to them is the fundamental assumptions mistaken, and that is God's grace in Christ not only frees us from Torah, it frees us to something, and that is to live as God's friends in ways that Torah never could. The gospel means less sin, not more. We're going to talk about that this evening. Now, of course, what does this do? This suggests that there's a problem with Torah. Now, it's really important to keep this in mind because in our culture, especially if you go on uni or you listen to anything on the ABC, or not them in particular, but just you know, in the media, we have this belief that we can talk about what's right purely on the basis of human assumptions. And folks, that's a complete dodo. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I actually find post-modernity a friend of Christian belief because it really pulls the carpet out from underneath that nonsense, sorry to be so strong, that human rationality can somehow give rise to an understanding of what's right and what's good. Plato, Aristotle thought they could do that about, what, 4th century BC, but by the 1st century, the time in which Paul was alive, that had completely collapsed, this eclectic scattering of beliefs. You just can't get there by human reason. It's really important to see that Paul does not play that game. He's not interested in some merely human speculative construction of the good. That goes nowhere really quickly. No, what makes this a big issue for him is because as a Jew, he knows Torah is in fact the highest expression of God's will. That's why he wants to talk about Torah. He knows this actually comes from the one true living God. So that's what gives this its edge. Now. Hence the first question, hang on a minute, right? are you saying Torah is sin? Now, it's not quite as daft as it might initially seem, if I can put it that way. I think what they're thinking is, Paul, if you're saying Torah is not part of the solution, that is, becoming God's friends, becoming righteous, then it's got to be part of the problem, which means it's sin, right? That seems to be the logic behind this. And you would know Paul's response. Not at all, he says, Torah is holy, just, spiritual and good, and you need to remember that. If you've come from a tradition where the Torah is simply something to make you feel guilty, and as soon as we get rid of it, you know, the better, not true. Paul's very clear. It's holy, it's just, it's spiritual and good. They both agree, him and his interlocutor, that God gave it. But he says you're right, actually, in that it does belong on the flesh, sin side of the equation. Remember Alison's great little chart up here with the two sides? Okay, have you seen that? It was last week. Yeah, well, how can that possibly be? How can Torah belong on that side of things? And Paul's answer has been twofold, right? First of all, Torah's command, don't covet, actually causes covetousness to spring to life. Remember the parable of the chocolate cookie jar? Right? Where mum said, don't touch. And next thing you know, the cookie jar fills the whole universe and you get overwhelmed by chocolate cookies. Yeah. And on the other hand, secondly, it can't do anything about it except pronounce a curse. That's why you get the next objection. Whoa, 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 hang on a minute. Are you saying this good holy thing is responsible for my death? And I think Paul says, "Ah, I'm not sure you've been listening. No, the problem is not Torah. And as Andrew so ably pointed out a couple of weeks ago, nor is it being human. That is fantastic news. It never quite struck me in the way that he said that. You know, being human is not the problem. You got that? That's really good news. If it was, there'd be no hope of our redemption. But being human is not the problem. That is fantastic news. After all, we're made in God's image. How can that be a problem? No, the problem is sin. And for me, and you can think about it, um, what sin means is that kind of rebellious agency, this curved inwardness, my lust for autonomy that is constitutive of human life ever since Adam. It can't be tamed as Andrew pointed out, let alone eradicated either by education or self-discipline. An old prophet of mine used to say, educate a devil, you just get a clever devil. Right? And if you want to talk about education and self-discipline, well, Torah is the pinnacle of all of that. In fact, it's God's given, right? Now, how does Paul know this to be the case? Notice he doesn't argue it from first principles. He doesn't do philosophy. has no interest in it, right? No? It's all just speculation based on the assumption the world is rational and the world is not rational. If you haven't discovered that, you know, time to come out from under your rock. Okay, <laughs> That's not the way the world is. How does he know that we have this problem? Well, he says, look at our universal behavior. Jews with Torah, Greeks with that, we're all in trouble. That's Romans 1 through 3. And then he says, Romans 5, and we all die. That's his evidence. that We've all somehow been touched by this thing that Adam did. Well, what's the answer? Finally, we get to our session tonight. What can deal with sin and death? And the answer is the life-giving new creational spirit. So let's talk about this. And just one little comment again from Alison. Thank you. As she pointed out so well last week, Rome did that to lots and lots of people. In fact, uh, when they took Jerusalem in 1870, they ran out of trees upon which to crucify people. So they're very accustomed to doing this. But as Alison noted, something made Jesus' crucifixion different. And how does Paul know that? Well, for one, try the resurrection. (laughs) That's that's going to alert you that something's going on here that didn't happen for all the others, right? And, And don't forget those BBC guys. Educated people, some of the best British, English, uh, British universities, convinced that you can't explain Paul unless the Damascus Road or something very much like it actually happened. And heartily agree with all of that. Well, how does Paul know something extraordinary happened? We've already mentioned the resurrection. Now, the implication of that's worth thinking through because the cross is always about some kind of curse. You can't have someone on a cross without a curse being present, but whatever else, it can't have been Jesus. Now, the curse has got to be somewhere else and the only alternative is ours. It was our sin that was condemned and put to death in Jesus' flesh on the cross. Now, we'd love to know how that works. And if we were Hellenistic philosophers, we could have all kinds of wonderful, analogous, speculative accounts of how this might have worked. That's what they call theology. But the problem is they're almost always wrong. So the best advice is don't speculate, right? And Paul never does. Interesting to notice, he never speculates. He's far too Jewish for that. So how does he know that this must have happened in Jesus? And it's because of what he's seen and touched and handled. Just as he knows that we all humans are entangled in Adam's autonomous flesh, Right? however that happens we don't know, but we all die. So that kind of, that's settled QED if you like so too he knows that God must have condemned him to death in Jesus body on the cross why because all those who trust in him receive God's spirit and this spirit really does change them he knows this in his own life and he's watched hundreds of frustrated Jews remember Romans 7 I think Andrew argued you know that what I want to do I, I want to say yes to the law but I can't do it talk about frustration and then pagan idolaters Both these groups together begin to experience a genuine transformation in their behaviour and in their thinking. He's seen this. He's watched their hearts change from being set on Torah or idolatry and become set on something or should we say someone else. And who would that be if not Jesus? The mechanism from this point of view is in one sense beside the point. You don't have to explain it to witness the consequences. And that's what he keeps pointing to. So what does that mean now then to bring us to our passage? Well, basically there are two ways of living and only two. There's the old way of the autonomous flesh, sin and death that reigned not only over Gentiles but Jews as well, with or without Torah. And a new way in which there is now no condemnation and this is the way of the Torah, if you like, of the spirit of life. And that too is for Jews and Gentiles without distinction. Now, part of the reason of this being in Romans is that Israel's identity is no longer about Torah. It's Jesus who now defines the people of God. Because he alone is the one who brings friendship with God, resurrection, and the life-changing spirit. So that's why Paul begins here in verse 5 by defining these two new mutually exclusive groups. You have those who centre their thinking and goals on the old autonomous flesh, who fight over how many toilet rolls you're going to get. 50 packs for me, none for you. And I just offered Paul a special deal. I have one at the back for 700 bucks, mate, if you want to. And those who align their minds and choices to the new creational life of the indwelling spirit. So, yes, Bobby Dylan got it right. We do got to serve somebody. And don't think about that in English for too long. We do got to serve somebody, my goodness. Now, I understand in our woke culture, this kind of exclusivism is not particularly welcome. But I have to say, perhaps as the engineer in me, uh, aircraft design has nothing to do with personal preference, how I choose to self-identify or ideology. Uh, you ignore aerodynamics and you're in serious trouble. Yes, you can jump off a 50-storey building and rail against gravity all the way down. But at some point, matters will come to an abrupt end. And the only change will be one less anti-gravity protester. There's something about the reality of the world that just is not amenable to our fuss and carry-on. It's what it is. And the resurrection is one of those events. It's as real as anything could be, and can I say this kindly, our only response is to suck it up, right? It's just what's out there, you've got to deal with it, okay? Uh, Paul knows this. And so then in verse 6, notice what I try to suggest, well, not suggest, I say quite strongly, to be honest. Notice the fundamental categories. What are they? To set the mind on the flesh is bad, no, death. And life of the Spirit, this is about or on the spirit is life and peace. Now, the life we get, what about the peace? Well, because as Paul will argue at length in Ephesians, and for me, by the way, Ephesians I think is the heart of Paul, not Romans, not by a country mile, it's got to be Ephesians. Sorry, I'm quite into very, what sort of after uh, balanced comments tonight, aren't I? Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, In Ephesians, Paul argues at length that the gospel is marked by reconciliation, peace, and unity. That's what the life of God is on about. Now, they're the two ways, and this is why the mind that's set on the flesh is in such trouble. You only have to read early Genesis, and it's not just about fig leaves. What happens very early after Genesis is you see these two families developing, And remember, this is proto-history, so be careful what you do with it. It's not the kind of stuff we're normally used to. But you start with Cain, the sons of Lamech, and then this arrogance swollen to madness with these kings who think they're the sons of the gods. They have as many women as they please, and their form of justice is just outrageous abuse. That's where it goes. And, of course, our experience. This autonomous flesh, this curved inwardness, this... Self-assertion is by its very nature hostile to God. And I won't shout this time, but um, you know, this, it's all about I will be the centre of the universe. And if you don't believe me, just remember Andrew's golfing day experience. Right? Watch what happens when that little white ball does not do what I expect it to. Or the yellow one on the tennis court, for that matter. Let alone the driver in front of me or my spouse. Whence comes all these wars and conflicts among us? Well, James has an answer. It's our conflicted cravings. We don't get what we want. And I saw on the news that two women apparently in Sydney's west or something are going to find themselves in court sometime next week because of behaviour over certain items from the store. We don't get what we want, so envy and selfish ambition. Our flesh by its very nature, not only will not, but it cannot submit to God. And that's the very nature of this lust for autonomy. I will do what I will do. And I think that's why verse 8 really gets to the heart of all of this. Think about what you would have written there, what I would have written there, but the real offence, I think, is this. It's unable to please God. Notice that? Not obey now, but Please. You can almost smell the visceral bridling when you use this language. I mean, it's offensive enough for God to expect me to obey, but to want to please him? You hear that? You see the difference? You can obey because you have to. I've been in families that are like that. Well-behaved kids, but no sense of pleasing. Pleasing is a very different thing. I will do what I please, thank you very much, not what God pleases. Among the ancient elites, the better a man is, the more he deserves. Notice men, not women. So that he who deserves most is the best. That sound familiar? Not much has changed in 2,000 years. The issue in Corinth all things are permissible to me. That's the unquestioned prerogative of those who have truly arrived. I think uh, we had a chap recently in court who thought that was the case with women, right? In the film industry, he's learnt differently. And in our culture, it can get uh, pretty embarrassing pretty quickly. We might learn to conceal it. That's part of being, you know, part of a middle-class culture or something. But every now and then it pops out. As someone once said, one sure way of knowing what's in an open 44-gallon drum is to give it a good kick. Anyone can be happy until someone gives us a good kick and then what's inside spills out for all to see. So this, of course, as you know, is what the true Lord's Prayer is all about. You know this, don't you? Sure you do. O oh Rick, who ought to be in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it should be in heaven. Give to thyself this day thy heart's every desire, and stint thou not. And graciously forgive all thine own trespasses, which in truth are but minor indiscretions, in fact, endearing peccadilloes. But make sure that every other jerk gets exactly what's coming to them. For thine, O oh Rick, or at least should be, is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, and you can insert your name at will. <laughs> well, <laughs> you see why we're in trouble. You see why marriages break down. You see why there's violence on the roads, right? Oh. But you know what the good news is? This is no longer us. And that's because we now live... In the eschatological age, that's a really big word. You won't catch anything if you say it. right? Uh, but it's to do with the coming together of all things. And that's marked by what? The life of the world to come. So the truth of the matter is, folks, if you put your trust in Jesus, you and I do now live in, by, and through God's new creational spirit who now dwells in us. So excuse the mess of metaphors. But the huge pink elephant hulking in the back corner over there has at last trumpeted out of the bag. And I can hear Bernard Woolley, anyone familiar with Yes Minister? Uh, Correcting hacker. Prime Minister, you don't put elephants in bags. I know that. Just get on with it. But we do need to talk about this, if I can say. Uh, It is a remarkable historical fact how quickly the spirit, so central to Israel's future hope, And the engineer of the New Testament proclamation was effectively relegated to the creeds. And I wonder if it might have something to do with three main drivers. So take your heart tablet now. Uh, I think one of the first ones is the Spirit's unfettered willingness to give women gifts and callings. Which I think in an increasingly conservative, Hellenistic and therefore patriarchal, post-apostolic church just was not on. And you can track that, right? The rapid decline in the role of women in that early church group once you get into the post-apostolic moment. And I think it's tied up with, as more conservative Hellenistic males became Christians, they brought their culture with them. Second point, that same conservatism just loved hierarchy. Just defined the Hellenistic world. You stop and think about it. What exactly do monarchical bishops of the 4th century have to do with Jesus' model of foot-washing? Not much that I can see. On the contrary, the spirit seems totally disinterested in sustaining class or social distinctions. And it's clear, the evidence is there. What used to be the ministry of the entire church soon becomes the providence of a handful of properly investitured professionals. And you can kind of kiss the church goodbye at that point. And the rise of, this is probably even more provocative, theology. You know me a bit, right? (laughs) This is hobby horse number 2093. (laughs) Uh, It's not a Christian word. It's inherently an elite male and rationalistic Hellenistic exercise. And no one in the New Testament or the Greek translation of Israel, scriptures, and Septuagint ever describes what they do as theology. And why not? Because theology is the rational science of God. Science doesn't mean what we mean, it means. I think I know what rationality is and God has to look like that. Well, you can't read your scriptures for long to realise that that is simply not the road down which God has travelled, nor does he take his people. So I remember a number of years ago, I um, went back to Cambridge to finish off some work and uh, was in the study centre there and, and we worked hard during the day and go to the pub, English pubs. Oh, I had a special place in my heart for English pubs. Uh, so we went there to talk about the Holy Spirit, which is a great place to, I think, talk about the Spirit actually. Uh, so one of the things we're talking about is why is it that so many of the academics we know have terrible trouble being open to the Holy Spirit? Right? Just, just don't seem to be aware of... Right? Uh, and the conclusion we came to is that our whole business in the academic world is about putting armour plate around your butt in terms of footnotes and all the books you've read. Right? All these arguments in careful serried ranks, and I get that. You know, Paul's a great thinker, but I think that control, that fear of being wrong, just quenches any hope of many of us academics being open to hearing from the Holy Spirit, because we're used to being in control, and that's the one thing you cannot do with the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, he will blow. Who said that? Where he wills. Someone famous said that. Anyone help me here? <laughs> You're all laughing. No one's given me the name. Right? Well, it seems to me based on these three things and there's probably others that it's not long before the only place for the spirit is in the church's confession and not so much in its life. But I want to say emphatically that was not so for the earliest followers of Jesus, for those who knew him best and who wrote our New Testament. They're Jews and you know how their scriptures begin right at the outset you have the spirit's role in creation. And yes, for those of you who are familiar with the debate, I do take elohim to mean the spirit of God, not mighty wind. I think that's where Psalm 104 points us, but we'll just let that one slide through to the keeper. And just as God's spirit was active in the creation of his cosmic temple, which is how I see creation, I think how the Bible sees it, the very next mention, at least in terms of God's own language, was in the construction of its miniature version, namely Israel's tabernacle, which is actually a middle, uh, sorry, a mini universe in its own right, and that's Bezalel, filled with God's Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? When God's creating a holy place, His Spirit is intimately involved, and what does that mean for us? We who are nothing if not a new creation. Then in Numbers eleven, when the task of leading Israel proves too much for Mo. Well, Moses, as you know him. Uh, God takes some of his spirit from upon Moses and then puts it on the 70 elders who then prophesy, just the ones we're told, which sends Joshua into a bit of a tizzy. Moses, my Lord, he says, stop them, stop them. You get this wonderful prophetic reply. Are you jealous for my sake? Would well, that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord will put his spirit on them. And just the thought occurs. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why we don't see a lot of the work of the spirit. Right? Maybe those of us in leadership get a bit jealous. <laughs> Do we really want someone from among the rank and file without theological training doing stuff like this? And That's not in my notes. I'll probably regret saying it when I get home tonight. But, uh, well, then when, with Moses' soon departure, you have Joshua, in whom is the Spirit? He leads him to the promised land of blessing. And then in Judges, the Spirit comes on him in time of need. In one place it says uh, the Spirit comes on and he burns with anger. Imagine that, anger is a fruit of the Spirit. Well, that's an interesting one. Maybe I have more of that fruit than any other. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Probably a difference between righteous anger and something else. What do they do though? They deliver Israel from their enemies. And uh, this is a topic for another time but it might just pique your interest that the one judge who has more mentions of the Spirit than any other is Samson and he's the one judge Israel never asked for. So he's entirely God's work which means either Hebrews 11 who calls him a hero of faith is wrong or... Those Sunday books that you've all grown up on have been taking you down the wrong path. But we'll leave that for another time. Some of you will think about Samson for the rest of our time here, I think. But the Spirit is not just then for building or leadership, but deliverance. God's holy war against his enemies. It all starts with the Spirit, which might explain what's going on in Ephesians 6, where the armour of God is all about, again, right? God rededicating his holy cosmic temple. Kingship. Oh, it's a fraught question, I know. But whatever else, you can't miss the role of the Spirit in both Saul, whose name, by the way, <laughs> hilariously means you asked for it, <laughs> okay. and David, right? And then, of course, there's the prophets. Okay. So you're just running all the way through Israel's scriptures, this incredible work of the Spirit in just driving this thing forward. But do note two things here. The Spirit was not for everyone, just a select few. And also notice how often when the language of the Spirit does appear, it's connected with two things, creation and power. I think the point is when the Spirit is present, nothing, nothing remains the same. But as we all know, ultimately things did not go well and we know the prophet spoke about the hope of a special anointing upon the Messiah whose name of course means anointed, yep, Uh, Our interest lies in the second but equally important strand, and that is the promise of the Spirit poured out upon all. Isaiah 44, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on dry ground. Hear that? Renew creation. And I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Uh, A little side comment here. I cannot understand how people who talk about the Spirit are not involved in creation care seems to me that they're intimately linked. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, that's what an idol has, and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And what's driving that? Not self-discipline, not education, Ezekiel the prophet, it's the spirit of God that will do that. Paul understands this. And finally, Joel 2, picked up in Acts 2. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, the lowest rung in society, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Everyone. Oh, I don't, well, I will get very excited about this. I'm sorry, but... Um, You know that ancient hierarchical world with all of those and the Holy Spirit just blows that all apart. It's totally irrespective of status, of gender. uh, It's just glorious to watch this. Everybody is made in God's image and that's what the Spirit does. That's what Moses hoped for all the way back in Numbers 11. Don't be jealous on my account. I would that all of God's people were prophets. And all this, I think, is what's in John the Baptist's mind when he spoke of the coming one, John says, I can do the water bit, but that won't change you. There's one coming after me. He's going to dunk you in the spirit. And I should say, by the way, that language of baptism is is much stronger than we usually think. It's used of ships foundering in serious seas, cities overwhelmed by armies. Uh, It's a very, very powerful language. It's not this kind of gentle, uh, one of those so bads where you see this beautiful young woman come up slow motion, her hair goes back and there's this, That's not what we're talking about here. This is a tsunami of new creational life, and that's what John talks about. And I want to suggest to you, that's why the New Testament has by far, in terms of just um, um, quantity of of references, far more than you find in Israel's scriptures, references to the Spirit. That's what they celebrate. And you see what's going on? The great news is this. Not only do we know what God, uh, what pleases God, but because of Jesus we now actually get to do it. Something Torah could never do for us. And I think that's what verses 9 through 10 are about. One can't belong to Christ whose name means anointed if one doesn't have the spirit. A spiritless Christian is inconceivable. It effectively denies that Jesus is both Christ, anointed, and Lord, and it's the Lord alone who immerses us in this new realm of the life and the spirit. And please note, this is not some marginal, modern, Pentecostal, charismatic thing. Moreover, it's not even a Christian thing. It's around long before anyone's even heard of us. It's at the heart of Israel's future hopes. This is what will define the people of God. What Torah could not do, God's indwelling spirit will. Now, this, can I suggest, is what God's condemning sin in Jesus' very flesh has done. In taking on our curse and raising us with him to this new life, there is now not only no condemnation, and you need to hear this, it's going to sound really radical, but if you believe in Jesus, even if you do sin, it doesn't matter. You can hear the fluttering in the background. What about naughtiness? What about naughtiness? Right, and, and Paul's got to answer that. You haven't been listening, right? But you hear that. It really doesn't matter because Jesus has already taken that penalty, and what it does is take enormous pressure off you. Uh, this is not in the notes, but so maybe take a few minutes. But I know I have to get to communion, so I need to get cracking. But um, I was in Brazil a number of years ago, and this is where Man United actually were playing good soccer, uh, which has been a while. But it was a European Cup, I think. They were playing it in Moscow, and there was Chelsea and Man United, and Ronaldo was playing for uh, Manchester and Terry for uh, Chelsea. Anyone old enough to remember that? Okay. So it came down to a penalty shootout, and guess what happened? Ronaldo missed, and then so did Terry, right? and Man United won. And I'm thinking, those guys get paid millions. I'll miss for half as much. Right? <laughs> I can do that. Right? What makes the difference? I mean, these guys do this every single day of the week in training with their eyes closed and eating an ice cream. How can they miss? What's the answer? Pressure. And I want to tell you because of what Jesus did when God condemns sin in the flesh in him, the pressure's off. It no longer matters. And you'll be amazed how that sets you free. That's what takes away the power of sin. Those threatening consequences are dealt with. You don't have to live with them anymore. Wow. That's great stuff. So it's not just no condemnation, but even more, all those great bright hopes of genuine change through the Spirit, they have now in Jesus become a reality. You really can become a different person in spite of what you might be told in the media. You can become different. You see, Israel's sacrifices could deal with past sin, but what about tomorrow? Well, that's what the Spirit is about. It's about making alive in ways that Torah never could. It's enlivening our mortal bodies so that we can actually live out the life of God. Then I suggest then that the reason Jesus died, yes, it's for our sins. But dealing with the sin is just the past. What about your future? And that's where the Spirit comes in. So as we prepare for our meal together, and I do know we're going to get there, right? And by the way, do feel free to celebrate around the table tonight if you feel thus moved. Though, of course, we would encourage you, and I think Megan um, forgot to mention this, Um, please don't raise your hands or clap with them, but you can use your elbows, and that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) On your elbows. (laughs) Well, can I just finish off with two little stories here? Maybe you're not like me, but I have a suspicion that in some respects we all are. I think at some point we've all gone to bed, haven't we? just disgusted with ourselves. We've just been really crappy to somebody. Can I say that in church too late? Just did... Um, We've just blown it and again. And apparently, uh, um, there's this obligatory beating up on ourselves. Should be better, try out a next time. Yeah, really? Really? And, and how much good has that done? Like, none. Okay. Well, then, you know, add, that, add to that a large dollop of self disappointment. I'm so much better than this. Rick, what's the matter with you? I mean, really? Really? <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> well, finally, exhausted from self flagellation. Uh, We kind of fall back into silence, right? You might know about that and uh, you've got nothing more to say except, and let me ask you, what happens next? I know I've been there. Isn't it true? From somewhere deep down in the core of our being, in that silence and exhaustion, a little voice cries out, oh Jesus, and that's it. That's all he can say. Let me say that again. I really do mean, and that is it. At last we have the truth. He is our final resting place. As because of this, I'm as sure as I can be of anything, that if right now, by some strange device, we were each of us in this space, all alone, everything dissolving around us, and there right in front stands the Lord, and he looks us in the face, and he just says gently, What do you want from me pretty much guarantee that everyone gathered here there would be that same small clear voice fragile as a spark i just want to be like you not the truth at the very bottom in the end i just want to be like you and that's it jesus is not fussed he's not worried he knows even if we don't that he's got us (laughs) if that's there he's got us right And let me assure you, in his hands, they are the very best. It's the sure sign that the spirit is at work. Second story, and this is all about orchards. Equally important, though. But you have to get up early enough to know. So uh, many years ago, we lived in Melbourne, and I would sometimes drive to my college along some back roads through fruit orchards, and often very early, 5 a.m. or even earlier. And I'd wind down the windows and listen, and it was truly amazing. You should hear the racket. All these fruit trees, agonising, struggling, yearning to be fruit trees, their frustration could have powered the entire city. Right? Well, of course not. <laughs> I don't do that. Fruit trees are simply being fruit trees. And can I suggest the same thing as at work in you? You are now a new creature and you didn't cause it to happen. You didn't make that to happen. That's what God did in Christ through the Spirit. Now, I'm not suggesting at all, that we have nothing to contribute. But I will urge most emphatically that this transformation does not begin with us. And there comes our great comfort and our great peace. It's God who does this. It is him who puts within us the willing and the to-doing. We are already people of the new creation. This is not about trying harder. We already are. We're not trying to become. We are. And can I suggest that's why the primary New Testament command is not try harder. It's not be a better person. We try that and it doesn't work. It is instead be filled with the Spirit. And why? Because the Spirit is God's life-giving, new creational action in us. It is His Spirit that wars against the flesh. Yet we need to cooperate, but the truly generative power comes from Him. Well, that's why I want to suggest to you that all of this transcends good and evil. In the sense that if we can just learn to trust in God's gift of his spirit, the goodness will take care of itself. That's the nature of this life. Let the life be what it is and the goodness will take care of itself. But you have to learn to trust him. And let him do his work at his pace. And they're two different lessons. It's one thing to say, the Holy Spirit's at work. And then the next thing is to take control by saying it has to happen this quickly. No, 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 no. If he's at work, he's at work. So can I just finish by making this um, just a suggestion? I hope it's not too radical. But tomorrow morning when you wake up, and I don't know if you're a morning person who just springs out of bed and drives everyone else nuts or, you know, coffee, okay? uh, whatever it might be, when you finally come to some kind of consciousness, without it being a burden, why not start your day by saying, Lord... Just fill me again with your spirit. Just flood my life today with your presence and be at peace. As Paul himself regularly writes when beginning his letters, grace and peace to you in the name of God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Good news. Okay. Thank you.